This evening is Wednesday. It is October 15th of 2008. Our message this evening is the seven last statements of Jesus. Uh, just prior to beginning our word this evening, Charlotte gave me a word said that I don't think this has anything to do with tonight, but I want you to know that I feel like the Lord spoke to me and said sin does not nullify the cross. It magnifies it. And uh, nothing could be more true. Uh, were it not for a profound need for grace and mercy, the cross uh, would not mean anything. And I know what it is to be born again and set free of so many things that I felt powerful and righteous and above sin <laughs> until I sinned. And then I knew what it was to be a worm that God saved, a wretch like me. And I find that the experience of both allows God's grace to grow and grow and grow. And as Paul said in Romans 6, we don't sin so that grace might abound. But the truth is, until you have been beaten down in an area that you just can't get right, but you want to with all of your heart, you don't really know what grace and mercy are. And yet, that's how we all got saved. Isn't that amazing? I want to talk to you about the cross tonight. Uh, One more thing I want to tell you that is not Scripture. It's something that God spoke to me a few weeks ago and I shared with you. Your sin will not keep God from meeting with you. It will not. That is a lie. It's a, a, a twisting of the truth that has happened through the years. Your sin keeps you from meeting with God. If sin kept God from coming to you, you'd have no hope for salvation. You'd never have any hope for repentance. Your sin is a problem for you. It makes you feel ashamed. It makes you feel like you can't come into His presence. But our God's the God who touches the lepers and makes them clean. That's what He does. And so I want to encourage you to never let the devil tell you you are incapable of getting to God's presence. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Luke 23. Y'all remind me sometime and uh, on another time I'm going to teach you about a whitewashed wall because that's the other message floating through my mind. There's got to be a reason for it. But now we're going to do what I said and cover the seven last statements of Jesus. So tell me Luke 23. One of the neat things is that Jesus didn't really say anything on the cross that He had not taught in concept in the last three, three and a half years. Having said that, we have what we call synoptic Gospels. And when we say synoptic, we usually mean that the three Gospels uh, pretty well agree on almost everything, cover the same material, the same things from different perspectives, and that John, the oddball, was different. And yet, on the seven last statements of Jesus, most of them you only find... One of the statements in one of the Gospels, one and another. Wouldn't you think that the last words that came out of Jesus' mouth before uh, His resurrection would have been recorded unanimously among all four writers? Or at least unanimously among the three synoptics? No, we don't find that. I, I found it peculiar. But then when you begin to look at them, it is an amazing thing. If you list them, it's difficult in chronology because since not... All in all of the Gospels, sometimes it's hard to know, did he say this before or after this happened? But you can pretty well place them all together and what, what he said during light hours, what he said during dark hours, and what he said right at the end. And I want to do that with you and see if you learn something. Because you find out what it is that we live, what it is that we preach, in just the statements that Jesus made on the cross. In other words, if he had never taught anything else except the words that he said during the last day in which he was hanging from a wooden beam, it would be enough. So I want to cover with you the first one. It's in Luke 23, 
and we will start, I guess, in uh, 32. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place of the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The first recorded words of Jesus on the cross when people have put railroad spikes through his wrists and through his feet, when he's been beaten to the point that his organs are exposed from the backside, when he's been sleep deprived and faced the pressure of all of his closest friends and family running, the first thing that Jesus says is forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I thought that this was pretty interesting because if you take your right hand and put it in your Bible on the Luke 23 passage, use your left hand to flip to Luke 19, we find something. In Luke 19, I've taught you about a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And in Luke 19, the 10th verse, Jesus makes a statement. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus did not come to find those who had the spiritual GPS working rightly. He did not come to find those who were healthy. He came to seek and to save those who needed Him most. And on the cross, you hear Him making intercession for the people that would need Him the most. Could there be anything that would be further from our base nature than to ask God to forgive. Even if you forgave, you'd want God to keep some record of it. You'd want to make sure that at some point in their lives there was a day of reckoning for what they had done, wouldn't you? But the very first thing that we learned from Jesus, last statements on the cross, is that He came to seek and to save those who had lost their way. How interesting is it then that in the first century, people did not call themselves Christians, themselves followers of the way. Over and over and over in the book of Acts, because to a Jew, you walked with God. And to walk with God, you had to walk in a certain way. And Jesus is interceding for those who simply had lost their direction and did not know how to follow the way. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How could they not know what they were doing? They knew they're killing an innocent man. They most certainly knew that. The Gospels go out of their way to show you that they knew he was innocent. In fact, the leaders, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, say, we can't deny he's done a pretty outstanding miracle. Let's kill him. So how can we say they don't know what they're doing? How could Jesus say it? We know he can't lie. He says, forgive them. They know not what they do. They didn't understand the implications. Have you never made a mistake that turned out to be so much worse than you thought it would be. Adam can relate to this. Not not Adam, the first Adam, but Adam, our Adam. I was laying underneath my very first Ford pickup truck with a wrench in my hand, because if you're going to own a Ford pickup truck, you also have to know how to put a wrench in your hand. So I'm tightening this bolt, and I'm thinking, just a little more. seemed like a good idea at the time. And then I felt the all-too-familiar breaking away, and it stripped. Now, I went to the store and 
thank God for an oil pan, they make something called a once-over. Which means if you were stupid enough to strip out your oil pan, they make a convenient self-tapping oil plug that you put in. The problem was that when I put the once-over in, I also stripped that one <laughs> So I went back to the AutoZone 24 hours on Government Road in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I said, I know they make a once-over. Do they make a twice-over? And the guy said, they do. You really don't know what you're doing, do you? I said, well, I thought I did. I understand what happened at the cross. What they were doing seemed like the most expedient thing to do at the time, and Jesus showed mercy for that. I've never read this statement that way. He said, you really don't understand what you're doing. He even wept over the city and said, if you had only known, what would bring you peace? What I want you to understand about the first of the seven last statements is in this we find how to relate to our fellow man. We need to be able to look at people who are tearing us apart, whether from a metaphorical sense or literally, and say, forgive them. They really don't understand what they're doing. The very first martyr in all of the Bible, not so. The very first martyr among the new followers of the way, Stephen repeats these words. He saw heavens open and Jesus standing in all of His glory and said, forgive them. Two people who were killing Him. Maybe the most important thing we could learn about the Gospel is that it teaches us to forgive those who simply don't understand the repercussions of their actions. Also, turn with me to John 1. You can leave your finger in Luke because we're certainly coming back there. In the first chapter of John... Get there. Tell me when you're there. And the twelfth verse. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So you don't have to turn to this one, but in Matthew 6, verse 9, teaching them to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven. In the first of the last seven statements Jesus made, not only do we learn to forgive, but he didn't say simply forgive. He said, Father, forgive them. Jesus teaches us, even in his last statement, to relate to God in a new way. Not only can you be forgiven and it be granted to you as mercy that you didn't really know what you were doing, but Jesus teaches us a new way to relate to God. He teaches us to call Him Father. A father is more likely to favor his own son, yes? All you need to do is go to a child football game, and you will find out that 11 starters on a field have 11 parents convinced that their son is the reason that the team is winning. All you need to do is go to a practice and examine who has decided to become an assistant coach. And you will find whose parents are insecure their children are not playing enough. A father has mercy for their own kids, first and foremost. Jesus speaks and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What an amazing thing. We need to go find people. We need to teach them that they can be forgiven because they really didn't understand the extent to which their actions are destroying them. Then we teach them a new way to relate to God. 
From this, when someone finds mercy, when Steve found mercy and he found out he could be forgiven, no longer can he view God angry with a stick over his head that wants to beat him down. He learns to say, God is like a father that maybe I never had or the good ways that he loved his father. But he learns to relate to God in a new way as one who wants to give good things, not somebody who wants to burn you. Now think about this. The first time you heard about God, was it in that sense? Or did you meet some young, zealous person like I was once that looked at you and said, you will burn? I stood outside of a bar and yelled at people that they were going to hell. It was years later I realized they already knew that. That's why they were getting drunk. They were trying to forget about it. That message lasted six months in Israel, and then John the Baptist lost his head. The rest of the way of the gospel has been teaching people a new way to relate to God and showing them how to find, receive, and accept His forgiveness. In the first of the seven statements, this is what I hope you find, to learn to preach forgiveness and new relationship. Would you like to go on to the second or should we stop here? Shamwow for 1999. Okay, in Luke uh, 23... Also, I guess you could just skip down to the next uh, red statement in your Bible, couldn't you? Which would be the 43rd verse. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. First thing that Jesus says is there is forgiveness and you can relate to him as Father. The second thing is a loaded statement. By the way, both of these statements only appear In Luke, isn't that crazy? Luke was a thorough historian, and I'm glad he wrote them down. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, from this, if you take this statement, I want you to think about the implications of it because they're profound. He's speaking to a man who is a convicted criminal. This is how Luke opened up. There are two criminals there, but he's only speaking with one, and he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. First and foremost, no soul sleep. No thousands of years before a judgment. No rushing forward in time. No sitting, sleeping in the dust with nothing happening. Today, you will be with me in paradise. First thing I want you to know is that the gospel is something that is immediate, that is urgent, and that takes immediate impact upon life. It doesn't start tomorrow. It doesn't wait until some point in the future The gospel is today. Second thing, he says, today you will be. Most of the world is convinced that the moment you die, you're exactly the opposite of you will be. They would say you are no more. You are not. In this statement, when Jesus says, today you will be, they think they are ending the man's life. But Jesus is saying, today you will continue to exist. You will be. If we move forward with this statement, he says, you will be with me. The truth of the gospel is that when we call upon his name, today, this very moment, whenever it happens, an immediate change occurs. You will exist. There will never be a time in which you do not exist. You will exist forever and not just exist, your fate will be the same as that of Jesus. 
you will exist with him, with me, he said. How comforting must that have been? You're lying on a cross, hanging on a cross rather, struggling for every breath, and you come to the saving realization that the man next to you is not only innocent, what he is doing, he is doing on your behalf. And you begin to cry out for mercy. And you find it. And he says, this second, right now, today, you will exist, you will be with me. You will share the king's fate. And then where does he say? In paradise. Now, the Greeks taught that paradise was in the earth and that paradise was like Elysium or Elysian fields, that it was a place for the abode of the dead, but a good abode, paradise. Does it matter whether paradise is in a hole in the northern sky or paradise is in the center of the earth or paradise is in Sugarland, Texas? Does it matter? He defined it when he said the very first thing. He said, with me. Paradise is wherever Jesus is doing whatever Jesus is doing. Come on, saints, there is truth in that. I have done what the world says is fun. found it lacking. I did it again just to make sure, and it was still lacking. And then, before long, it was mastering me and making me do that which I did not want. All the while, saying it's fun. Jesus, however, says, if you'll come with me, it will be paradise. And it has been for more than 15 years now. In statement number one, we find new ways to relate to the Father and we find forgiveness. In statement number two, we find an immediate present salvation that causes us to exist forever with Jesus. And wherever that is, is paradise. I would say he's doing pretty good so far. That's better than any fortune cookie you ever read, huh? Wow. There may be one other point to consider as long as we're talking about preaching the gospel here. If there's a person on my left and a person on my right, and I turn to the person on my right and say, Today you will be with me in paradise. Where does that leave the person on my left? Not with me. Not in paradise. Right? The very nature of this gospel is that it is a free will thing. That what is presented is that your Father will forgive you because you didn't know what you were doing that He will call you Father, or you will call Him Father and He will consider you a son, that you can be with Him and exist forever in paradise. But if you stand next to the King, you see and understand what's being revealed and say, no, your inaction is a one-way ticket out of paradise. Two men are there that day, both in the exact same circumstance, both in earshot of the King. One finds mercy. The other is so stubborn that he finds punishment. All mankind falls into one or the two areas because we're all guilty of criminal behavior in God's eyes. The question is, who wants to take advantage of the new relationship? Who wants to find a new way of life that is called paradise? Who wants to exist forever with Him? Or will we persist in going our own way? The gospel is surely preached in the first statement. It's expounded upon in the second. How about the third? The third is found only in John 19. So let us turn there. Tell me when you're in John 19. In John 19, let us pick up in the 26th verse. 
25th verse. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary of Magdal, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus' first statement, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. His second statement, today you will be with me in paradise. His third statement, here is your son. Here is your mother. So, well, what on earth could be the gospel about this? In fact, isn't this kind of odd? Every time Jesus has talked about your mother or your father before, well, let me think, what did he say before? In Matthew 10:37, he said, if you don't love me more, than your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. You're not worthy of me. He who doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's a hard word, Lord. Who can take that? Maybe he only said it there. No, he pretty well said in Matthew 8, 21, almost the identical thing. So what could this be? Did Jesus put into practice his teaching? Because in in Luke 8, 31, when he says it, people say, Your mother and brothers are outside. He said, who is my mother and my brothers except they who do God's will? We learn that in the kingdom, through Jesus' third statement, something happens. We learn to reinterpret our familial relationships. It doesn't mean that your father and mother cease to be your father and mother anymore. It means that you take on a new family called the family of God. Hmm. Turn with me to 1 John 3. Perhaps... This will make my point clear. Y'all still awake? Y'all tired of turning in your Bibles? You're worn out, physically exhausted, fingers are cramping. No? Good. First John 3 and 17. As soon as I can find it in my Bible. 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? In Jesus' third statement, we find out that the love that we have for the family of God with Jesus as head needs to outweigh the love that we were raised with among our siblings and our parents. In the same way it is natural for you to stick up for your brother, for you to take care of your child, for you to nurture or protect your parents, in their older age, in the kingdom, we have to have that same affection even to a greater degree for the family of God. How do you reconcile that with something like 1 Timothy 5.8 that says if you don't take care of your own family, especially your immediate family, you're worse than the infidel? Well, I think in the third statement of Jesus on the cross, we find somewhat of an enigma. We find a man who has preached that his mother and his brothers were only those who did the will of God to the exclusion of his own family, taking care of his own family. Well, what? how does that work? Maybe in the end, he just went soft. The promise is as if you will take care of God's family as if it were your own. God will take care of your family. I want you to understand something, saints. In the third statement, we find something. We find that when we put God first, He takes care of everything else. This means that your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, those relationships are not as important to you as doing God's will. And those who are doing God's will 
unto you like fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. He said, but what about my own family? In the end, even if it costs you your life, God will make provision for them. Now, incidentally, how did Jesus make provision for his mother? Did he just take one of his brothers, one of his natural brothers? He had several. James, Jude, Joseph. He had sisters. Did he entrust her to a sister? Who did he entrust his mother to? A disciple who had now become a brother in the family of God. What I'm trying to say is that when we take care of the family of God, the family of God takes care of us. This is a mystery in the gospel. It is part of the new relationship that happens. When we learn to receive God's forgiveness in statement one, He becomes a father to us. In statement number two, when we learn how to receive an immediate salvation, exist forever with Him, life becomes the paradise that God intended for it to be. Not absent of problems, trust me, we'll get to the other statement, but a paradise in that you know peace in a way that you could not otherwise. Thirdly, we find out that every relationship that we have must be secondary to our relationship to Him. And that if we will put Him first, everything else will fall into place. As I began to reflect upon these three first statements, I thought, you know, Jesus, that's amazing. We have you interceding for sinners during your dying hour. We have you pardoning the repentant during your dying hour. And we have you blessing the members of God's family in your dying hours. And then it hit me. All of those things are the things that a priest does. A priest intercedes. A priest leads people to repentance. And a priest blesses people. He's our high priest, saying. Three statements on the cross, the hours that the man is dying, and he is performing his duty to the utmost. i got chills all over my body because he's so good. Hmm. The next statement really begins difficulty. Why don't we turn to Matthew 27? See if we can get through this without tears. In Matthew 27, let us skim to verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Sixth hour to ninth hour, darkness. Six from nine, that's right. Three hours, darkness has fallen on the land. The statements that I'm going to read you, statements four and five, are during the dark hours. Jesus on the cross. We find that the fifth statement, fourth statement, I'm sorry, that he makes is Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel is not just about a man who died for our sins. It's not just about a man who offers forgiveness and a new relationship to the Father. It's not just about a way to paradise or a way to be blessed or a way to join a new family or to have some membership. And it's very hard. The gospel is about a man who had a relationship with a God as Father that suffers a separation for your benefit that causes him to only see him as God for a short time. This is the only time in all of the Bible that's recorded that Jesus speaking to his Father calls him God. 
If Judah is in trouble, he may say, Daddy, help me. But if it was a stranger there, he might say, Hey, you, help me. Just a generic name. This term is a generic name for God. It's because 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches, He who knew no sin became sin for us. In Jesus' statement, His fourth statement on the cross, we find the truth of the gospel. Not just that you can be forgiven, but that somebody had to be separated from God so that you could be reunited with Him. And that of all the dirty things that were ever done to Jesus, the cat of nine tails could not have compared to three hours of darkness the first time in his life he felt an absence of God's presence. As you contemplate that, maybe your mind goes backwards to a time when you've seen the passion of the Christ or something. Understand that He experienced separation so that you would never have to. How dare we? How dare we let the devil convince us to dwell in shame and not come into His presence? How dare we stand at a distance and treat Christianity as if it were a political affiliation? The man suffered a separation so that you would never have to. Second Timothy. Ah, I'm not going to read you that one yet. Turn with me to John. John 19 again. If you haven't noticed, we're flipping back and forth between the end of various Gospels because they're not all recorded in the same place. In John 19, the 28th verse is Jesus' fifth statement on the cross. I am thirsty. These two statements in darkness undoubtedly hours apart because of the three-hour time period. And when you look at the events that happened before and after in the other Gospels, what you begin to piece together is that the my God, my God, or Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani seems to happen as the darkness sets on and he feels the separation. Towards the end of his struggle in the darkness, separated, he is feeling something. And he says, I am thirsty or I thirst. Well, what could you learn from a statement like that? Second Timothy 3.12 says, Anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before Him. He was born, and for this purpose He came into the world. And yet experiencing the road in which He must walk left Him empty and drained. And thirsty. We make a mistake when we preach the gospel and we simply say, oh, you can be forgiven. He can be your Father. You can be with Him in heaven forever or in His presence forever. We make a mistake when we say He will take care of you if you take care of Him. We make a mistake when we say He suffered separation for you so that you didn't ever have to or will never have to again if that is all we say. Because as much as those things are a part of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is every day with Him is a paradise and yet you will most certainly thirst and your body will hurt and your flesh will crave and yet you're not a slave to it. The truth of the gospel is that it's through many struggles, trials and snares that we have to go through before we enter the kingdom of God. If our Christ suffered if the anointed teacher suffered, how much more his followers? 
But when you think about it in that light, is this a punishment? Or is it in a glorious identification that Paul calls the sufferings of Christ? The early apostles would not allow themselves to die in the same way he did because they didn't think themselves worthy of it. And when they were beaten in his name, they rejoiced that they had the opportunity to suffer for the name. They knew inherently instinctively within them because of the magnifying presence of the Holy Spirit that although this looked like an insult, it would result in their very glory. So that the Apostle Paul could write under the most extreme circumstances, I consider that my present sufferings are not comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is the Gospel saying. The gospel is not simply that you will be blessed or that He will be your Father. The gospel is not simply that you will exist forever and you will be with Him in His presence. The gospel is also that in our suffering the glory of God is revealed. And it is a joy to be used in that way. Do you think that it is only the Christians in China whom we read books about that get this privilege? As we stand up and do what God has called us to do, Surely Christ's statements will apply to us as well. Last words that Jesus begins to speak. Statement 6 and Statement 7. The hours of darkness were from the third hour to the sixth hour. Doesn't that imply that it became light at some point after the sixth hour? Now we're getting close to sunset, no doubt. But the idea is that in an unnatural part of the day, Darkness ensued that corresponded with his separation from the Father, but at some point it began to lift, somewhere around the sixth hour. As we're coming out of the darkness, Jesus has another statement. It's found in John 19.30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. Hmm. How interesting, because... In John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of the Father and to finish His work. So what was finished, I wonder? Then in John 5.36, we need to read this one. Keep your hands where it's at and turn with your left hand to the 5th chapter and 36th verse. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to... One of my favorite quotes these days has come from a man who refers to himself as Big Black. And Big Black says, let's do work, son. Do work. Jesus didn't do work. Jesus finished his work. One of the marks of immaturity is to see that a man does not complete what he starts. One of the marks of immaturity is to walk in and everywhere you look, you see things began but never completed. One of the hopes of the gospel is that the very power and presence that began his work in you will be faithful to complete it. He never said, I just came to do the Father's work. He's very clear and every time he says, I came to finish his work. It cost the man every last ounce, every last drop of his life. But he finished the work. So what was it then that was finished? 
all of mankind's redemption is finished in the cross. There's nothing else that can be added. There's nothing else that can be taken away. Nobody can steal from you what has already been done for you. And yet, two people there and 50% of them refused to take advantage of what God had already done for them. Why? Because a man condemned to die who was a criminal was too proud to ask for help from someone? Doesn't that seem a little foolish? And yet, how many people do you know and how many years of your life did you spend condemned as a criminal but were too proud to ask for help? Indeed, are there any areas of your life tonight that you feel like a criminal, but you are just too proud to ask for help? See, this is not a problem simply for the lost. It's a problem for those who are not yet completely sanctified. Let me see. If we took a head count, that's right. That would be 100% of us. If you were a football coach, 110%. They're the only people that are allowed to squeeze in that extra 10%. It is finished. Jesus did everything he needed to do to save you to the uttermost. Have you done everything that you can do to be saved to the uttermost? I said that the cross can't be added to and it can't be taken away from, but it can be utilized to its fullest potential in your life or it can be neglected to your own peril. The thief who was, I like to think on the right side, took advantage of the cross and everything that it had to offer. The thief on the left side was either waiting for a better deal or didn't recognize what was being offered to him. What side will you fall on tonight? So, but Eric, I'm already saved. Is there an area that you are not completely saved from? So, but I know that I'm going to be with Christ forever. I understand. You're going to give an account for every area of your life. Brother Slaughter, Brother Mays taught the men the other night about footholds. They said that a foothold was a place that inherently allowed further advancement. That is definitely one kind of foothold and probably the one that the Scripture refers to. Like when a man is climbing a mountain, a foothold is a place that he can gain a new elevation. I am familiar with another kind of foothold that also allows for advancement. I began a very brief wrestling career as a sophomore in high school. And this short, stocky man, if he got hold of any appendage of mine, but especially a foot, could make me do anything he wanted me to do. Are there any footholds that we're not completely safe from where the devil makes us do things that we don't want to do? Tonight would be the time to deal with that. So, but Eric, we only covered six statements. We didn't cover seven. Aren't six enough? Seven is a perfect number. Let's cover it. The last thing that Jesus said before His resurrection is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. I love Luke's attention to detail. It will be in the 23rd chapter of Luke, like all of the other Jesus statements. 
And what a powerful statement it is. It's in the 46th verse. Right after the temple was torn into the curtain in the temple. It says, Father, no longer my God, but Father, because the darkness has lifted. Into your hands I commit my spirit. What could you learn from the seventh statement that Jesus makes? His body torn. His body failing. Most people begin to fear death at this point. I had a relative that told me, when I die, just put on my tombstone. Heaven wouldn't accept me and hell couldn't, wouldn't have me or some ridiculous thing. Very proud, arrogant man. I witnessed to him about the gospel and his pride kept him from receiving. He said, I've been a religious man all of my life. And I thought, obviously, obviously, there's thorns on your fruit tree, but you live in deception. Funny thing, never amassed much money in his life, but near the end, everything he did was a success. Hundreds of thousands of dollars spent in the last year of his life. And what for? For a children's foundation? For a legacy? Something that would outlive him? For kindness to the poor? He spent every dollar he had to keep himself alive a day longer. Why? Because he could not say like Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew that nothing awaited him except a fearful expectation of judgment. Friends, in the seventh statement that Jesus said, find the truth of the gospel. You're either in his hands or you're not. Jesus could confidently say, having finished the work God gave him to do, into your hands I commit my spirit. Like Paul, who could confidently say in Philippians, I'm sorry, Philemon, For me to live is fruitful labor. To die is gain. What shall I choose? I'm torn between the two. I prefer to go on and be with Christ, but if I live, it will mean fruitful labor for you. For us, the sting of death is gone. Because having finished His work, the Father's hands receives your very spirit. For those who refuse, Nothing remains except the fearful expectation of judgment. In this room tonight, I would believe, because I'm your pastor, that everybody is committed to the Father's hands. I think the point of this message for you is, is His salvation finished in your life or are there still unturned stones? Are there still areas that you need to reflect on? Let His forgiveness reign in. Acknowledge that you really don't know why you do the things that you do. And ask for His help receiving it. Doing something different tomorrow than you did today. I want to recap for you. We preach according to Jesus. Forgiveness, number one. Number two, we preach the paradise of being with Jesus. Number three, we preach the provision for the family of God. Number four, we preach 
about the separation that is caused by sin. Number five, we preach about the necessity of trials and the glory revealed in them. Number six, we preach about the redemption of man that was completed on the cross. Number seven, we preach about our new, what Paul calls, home in the presence of God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You don't have to wait till your dying breath to say that. You can commit your spirit into His hands this very moment. Jesus had done it every day of His life, always. He only felt separated for number four and five. And He rededicated right before He gave His last breath. Saints, I don't know what you need to do with this message. But I suspect it's one worth meditating on. I think it's one worth examining your life on. Can you cry out, it is finished? Or is there still something left to do? Stand up and let's pray.